Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. If you're a guest here, uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to Epicos. We are glad that you're here. My name is Mark. Uh, I get to serve as the lead pastor here, and uh, it's great. It's great. I hope you take advantage of the connect that Tommy was talking about. Uh, it, really, it really is important uh, that you just not kind of come and go, but you kind of get to know you around here. So even if you're kicking the tires around this place, we'd love to get to, we'd love to, get to meet you in that way. Do you remember... Do you remember the first time you got your own place? Now, for some of us, that's like in the future. <laughs> uh, but for some of us in this room, it's like, oh yeah, I remember it the first time I got my own place. Uh, specifically for, for me, like lived with some college buddies right through college and whatnot. Cassie's smarter than me. She graduated early and I decided to change majors a couple times. So we got married and then uh, moved to Oklahoma where I f- was finishing my, finishing my degree. And we had to find our own place for the first time, uh, specifically as, as a married couple. And we had, like, we had like two important criteria. We were broke. So it was like, can we afford to live here? Uh, and then, you know, is, is it safe, right? Is it, is it like dirty? Are there mice running around? These kinds of things. And and thankfully, there was on-campus housing for us that we ended up going to. And it was like the first time we had to buy furniture. And some of you remember this. Some of you have this to look forward to. Like the first time you had to buy furniture, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting experience, especially when you have like no money. Uh, as you walk into a mattress store and you're like, what's the cheapest mattress you have? We'll take that one. And uh, the first couch that we ever owned, uh, I don't know why. I hope they don't still do this. Uh, but the university that I went to, they, they resold used furniture from the dorms. And so our first couch that we ever owned was for $5 that we bought from the university that was in the boys' dormitory. Yes, what were we thinking? (laughs) I don't even want to think about what that couch was. Anyways, we had a good couch cover, but you know, you do what you can. But regardless of whatever furniture you had, where you live, most of us can uh, resonate with this, is that when you get into a new space, sometimes it just takes a little bit of time to figure out what the best like situation is with the furniture, right? You try the couch here, TV there, that doesn't work. Let's shift the couch. Let's try that. Does that work better? I don't know. It doesn't flow as well. So then you shift it again. Anyone with me on this, right? Or it's just like, let's try this, you know, one more time. Some of you, like I'm giving you PTSD, like, please, stop talking. Um, uh, As we come to our story today in Exodus, God is going to give his instructions for the tabernacle to Moses. And unlike the indecisiveness that often comes into our homes on where furniture should be, God leaves no room for interpretation. He says, I'm going to tell you exactly how it should be, and I'm going to tell you exactly how to make everything and where where these things are going to be. In fact, we can see this in Exodus chapter 25, which is where we're going to start today. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, it says this. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary, in other words, a place that is holy and set apart, that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And we find something interesting about this tabernacle when we jump ahead to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8, we read this in verses 1 and 2, and we jump to verse 5. You can follow along on the screen. It says, now the point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, 
a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jump to verse 5. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, and we, we, we read here what we had just read in Exodus, see, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on, on the mountain. And so here we go. We're going to look at the temple, uh, the, sorry, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, God's tent of meeting, and we're going to see uh, one important thing. It's just spoiler alert. Uh, the tabernacle points to Jesus. Okay, the tabernacle points to Jesus, as most things do in the Bible. The tabernacle points to Jesus. And here's, here's the whole point of the message. So if you fall asleep because you're tired, maybe you're up too late last night, you can pretend like you heard the whole thing. The tabernacle points to Jesus. Jesus is not only our salvation, but he offers us an invitation. That is what we're going to see in the text. And uh, we're covering a lot of chapters today, chapter 25, 26, 27, and then we're going to jump to chapter 30. We're not going to read all that. That would take the majority of our time. And so I encourage you to read that at home uh, in your small group. I'm going to give us a 30,000 foot kind of flyover of of six specific pieces of furniture that God instructs uh, to be built, uh, what their purpose is, uh, how they point to Jesus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So let's go ahead and let's dive in. What are the six pieces of furniture that God instructs Moses to build for his tabernacle? So what's unique about this instruction is typically when we think about building something, we think about building something from the outside in. In other words, we start with the foundation and the walls, and then we kind of work our way in to the minute details, but God starts with the minute details. God starts in the innermost place. He starts with a place where his glory will rest, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. There's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant uh, that you can see, and um, this uh, it's wooden box, uh, if you will. There's instructions you can read in chapter 25 exactly how they are supposed to make this and, and, and how they are supposed to detail this out, 27 inches by 27 inches by 45 inches, uh, use uh, poles to carry it with. No one can touch the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it would eventually hold the stone tablets that God writes on that Moses comes down with. It would hold a piece of manna uh, that the Israelites would remember because the manna was in there, that God is their sustainer and provision of life. It would hold the part of a staff from Aaron uh, that had like uh, started to grow like a new leaf, a budding staff. And that's a story that happens a little bit uh, later in scripture where we see God is uh, not only the sustainer of the life that we have, but he offers life in the future. This is all in the Ark of the Covenant and on top is called the mercy seat and has two cherubim on it. What are cherubim? Cherubim are like big, scary warrior angels. Uh, In our limited understanding of of who they are in Scripture, they're these spiritual beings that are seen as as warriors. Uh, They guard uh, the entrance to Eden after Adam and Eve are kicked out, and they are not to be messed with. What's interesting about the cherubim is that uh, they are sewn into the tapestry all on the inside of the tabernacle. And remember what we just read in Hebrews, this is a copy of heavenly things. God wants them to understand that there is a heavenly throne room and in God's heavenly throne room, he is surrounded by warrior angels. 
And that should bring awe and that should bring a lot of humble presence as the priests enter in to do their priestly work. And the one time a year where a high priest would go into this room to the Ark of the Covenant to offer a sacrifice to, to pour the blood that would be the atoning sacrifice for giving all the sins of the previous year of the Israelites, he would do so with the visual reminder that the very presence of God is guarded by warrior angels. I said, this is where my presence is going to rest, and I want you to give you just a copy, just a symbol of what actually exists in a realm that you cannot see. And then he he moves his way outward. The next thing that we see uh, in chapter 25 is the table and the lampstand. The table is uh, bread, and so they're constantly baking bread to put on the table in the tabernacle. So it probably smelt really good, right? And what did the bread stand for? But God communes with us, right? But more importantly, God provides the sustenance of life. Israel is utterly dependent on God. And so there's this work that the, the priests have to do on this table, and it's just this reminder of their dependence on God and how God is the sustainer of all their life. The lampstand, uh, reading this is, is wonderful. I'd encourage you to do so. There's this is wonderful imagery that is uh, cre- crafted into the shape uh, of the lampstand that reminds, is supposed to point the people back to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. And what did God create at the very beginning of time? But God created light. God is the creator of light. And God led the Israelites out of Egypt with light. God is not just lighting their path out of Egypt, but God will light their path in the future. God is their light. God is their direction. God is their way. He will make a way. And and so the priests are just reminded of this as they're doing the work inside the temple. God is their sustainer and God is their way maker. Moving out, what's the next thing that we see? Jumps to the outer court, and he gives Moses instructions for what's called the high altar. A high altar is this giant altar uh, that they would continually burn sacrifices on. Uh, they would continually burn sacrifices all throughout the day for forgiving sins and, and uh, all these things. And it was just, it was literally a bloody mess as animals were being sacrificed. Think of, it was loud and it was messy, but it was a reminder of this, that sin required death. And that the only way to get into the presence of God was for something else to die. The only way to gain favor with God is for something to die. It was the first thing that they would run into. Now, I just kind of flew over 25, 26, and 27, those chapters in Exodus. Chapters 28 and 29 are the priestly garments, uh, the instructions that the priests were supposed to wear. We're going to save that for next week. Uh, Pastor Frank is going to teach that next week. And uh, we've been kind of encouraging him that he should actually wear priestly garments. So... For those of you who know Frank, we'll see if he takes, takes us up on that offer, but we'll see. But anyways, come back next week for the priestly garments, chapters 28 and 29. Let's go ahead in chapter 30 as we finish up the furniture. It's two more pieces of furniture, okay? We've hit four. We've got two more. The next two is the altar of incense. The altar of incense is inside the room with the table and the lampstand. And the altar of incense is for intercession. In other words, the people could not have direct access to God, but the priests did. 
And so the people had to come and, and offer sacrifices and coals from the high altar would be taken into the tent and be used to light the offering for the altar of incense. And the priest would stand as incense would rise up from the altar of incense through the tent and be a symbol of the prayers of intercession for the people of Israel. And this is really important about the altar of incense, that the coals from the high altar were used to burn the incense. In other words, the prayers of the people were fueled by their sacrifices and and, and vice versa. Sacrifices fueled their prayers. The last last, uh, thing that we have that God says, I want you to build this, is a basin of water, a laver, if you will. And this is because uh, doing the sacrifice, doing the work of the sacrifice, it was hard work. And he got dirty. And no priest could enter into the rooms of the tabernacle without being clean. And so the purpose of the basin was that they had to purify themselves. God cared about sanitization back in Exodus. He, he wanted his people to be pure. He wanted his people to be, to be clean before they could enter into his presence. So a lot of information there, a lot of information about these six pieces of furniture. Let's put it, let's put it all together. So we can understand how this, how this flows. Here's a picture of what the temple a tabernacle probably looked like. It was quite a spectacle, okay, as the offerings were being burnt on a daily basis on the high altar, and then you had the smoke coming up from the tent from the altar of incense. But the first thing that people saw as they came in from the, uh, into the outer court was that high altar, a reminder that sacrifice was required to be in God's presence. And then there's all this work being done in the outer court all throughout the day for sacrificing, and it was, it was loud, and it was messy, and the priests who did the work in the tent of meeting, the actual tent, they had to clean themselves with the basin of water. So you had the sacrificing, then you had this cleaning, and then they could enter into the tent. And when they entered into the tent, there were two rooms. There was the uh, room called the holy room, and then the holy place, and then the smaller room called the most holy place. And so uh, they would enter into the holy place, and there were three pieces of furniture, the bread and the lampstand and the altar of incense. And throughout the year, priests were in this room performing their priestly duties. Once a year, high priest, the high priest would pass through this veil, this curtain, into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence dwelt, and make the atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel. We must understand this about the the tabernacle. This is why it's important for us, is that the the setting of the tabernacle is a copy of a, a heavenly throne room. That God exists in heaven surrounded by an angelic army. And he wants us in his presence. But because of our sin, there had to be a work done in order to get there. And this is how it points to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all of the work of the tabernacle. Read with me uh, in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 Verses 23 and 24. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24 says this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And this is the beauty of how Christ fulfills the work of the tabernacle and how the tabernacle points to Christ. Because when Christ died on the cross, it was the once and for all sacrifice, for all sin, for the whole world, uh, that, that no other sacrifice could make and that no one could ever do on their own. Because our sin, there's no way to get to God. And even their sacrifices, they were only good for a specific time. When the high, when high priest entered in and made the atoning sacrifice for the whole year, he exited the tent and boom, it like started from zero. And then like the sin started tallying up until the next, until the next uh, uh, event was a year, a year later. But Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. And then we get to the, to the basin of water that they had to purify themselves before they went into the, into the holy place. When the New Testament talks about being washed in the blood of Jesus, this is a metaphor, this is an imagery of what it is that Jesus' blood washes us clean from all the blemishes that we could ever have. And that Jesus' work on the cross and his death and his resurrection, it washes us clean. And because of the work of Jesus, we enter into the holy place, which no normal person could enter into the holy place. But we can enter into the holy place. And what do we get when we enter into the holy place? We have the bread. What does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? That he's the bread of life. We have the lampstick. What does Jesus say? He says, I'm the light of the world. And for those of us that remember the Easter story, what happened to that veil when Jesus died on the cross, it tore from top to bottom. This 30-foot giant curtain in the temple and Jesus said there will be no separation because I am here and Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our mediator and it's because of Jesus in Hebrews when, in Hebrews 7 when it says we can boldly approach the throne of God. Those aren't just minute words. It's a copy of heavenly things. We can come before the presence of God because of who Jesus is. So any religion that requires you to have a human intercessor between you and God is of no true faith at all. Because Jesus is the only mediator we need and we know in the New Testament that we are priests. Because Jesus is the one and only high priest. And he gives us his confidence and he gives us his wonderful security and confidence that we can have in who we believe in that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That when, like it says in Romans chapter 10, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We can stand in the holy place with Jesus as our high priest because of all the work that he's done. And this helps us see that the tabernacle is not some ancient relic ritual the tabernacle is this beautiful blueprint and design because God wants us in his presence. All the way from the Garden of Eden, all the way to now and then into the future, God wants us in his presence and we can do that through Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So it's, it's fall and uh, this fall, hopefully you have like a favorite fall thing to do besides just buying a pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks. Uh, or from Lake Effect. I don't know if they sell pumpkin spice lattes, but whatever they sell, buy it. It's good. Um, uh, yeah, we have fun traditions, right? Halloween, trick-or-treating, these, these kinds of things, uh, taking family pictures with all the colors. Colors are beautiful this year, aren't they? 
It's gorgeous. Oh man, it's gorgeous. And uh, sometimes I wonder, is that a sign I'm getting old that like I'm noticing the colors of the leaves? Sometimes like I'll be driving with Cassie, like, oh, look at the trees. And I'm like, am I old? Like, did I notice these things when I was in my 20s? I don't know. Um, But anyways, welcome into my mind. Uh, Let's get out of it. So uh, anyone here carve pumpkins? Anyone carve pumpkins? Nobody carves pumpkins. Okay. Some people carve pumpkins. Carving pumpkins is fun. Carving pumpkins is fun. And so, you know, we have kids, and so we have kids like carving pumpkins, right? And so it's kind of fun. Got the ooey, gicky stuff on the inside, rip it out, and all that kind of stuff. But like, like when you have a one-year-old, you don't just hand them a butcher knife and be like, go for it, buddy. See what happens. And you do it, you do it yourself, right? But like as our kids have gotten older, and like they carve pumpkins, which they're in the room, and so yes, we will buy pumpkins to carve. We have not done that yet. I know. We're still moving in. It's okay. Okay. When we carve pumpkins, like it's, it's enjoyable to see them do it, to buy the pumpkin, to provide all the things that they need to carve the pumpkin, and, and just to see them do it. It's enjoyable. Uh, think about it in this way. Maybe in your life, like have you had a skill or a talent or an ability that you've been able to help someone else have as well. And so you're sharing with them and you're teaching them and all of a sudden they kind of pick up on it. And all of a sudden, instead of doing something for somebody, you're doing something with somebody. Are you guys with me? It's, it's enjoyable. It brings a whole different sense of, of joy. God created heaven and earth. God created all things. God, God uh, just with his words, spoke the universe into, into existence. He he saved Israel out of Egypt and it allowed them to just bring a lot of riches out of Egypt. And and so God could have been on the mountain and could have just said, Moses, I have the tent of all tents that I am going to design for you. And he could have just snapped his fingers and before his breath would have even left his mouth, it would have been made, it would have been amongst his people, it probably would have been levitating, right? Because it would have just been moving with them and it would have been the coolest tent of all tents. It would have been amazing. Everyone would have been astounded by it. It would have been the greatest thing that had ever ever been sown. It would have been the greatest craftsmanship that had ever been crafted. It would have blown their minds out of the water. God didn't do that. This is one of the beautiful things about this text and about this continuous theme that we see with God and his people. He wanted them to be a part of it. Let's read this. It actually bookends this entire section of scripture where it's teaching about this is how I I want the tent of meeting to look like. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution Get this next part, every, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And we jump to chapter 30, where we see like the, the final things about the altar of incense and, and the laver. And he says this, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. God wanted them to be a part of what he is doing. God supplied everything that they needed to be a part of what he is doing. But let's not read the Bible so, uh, in such a way where we take the humanity out of the Israelites. They have a newfound freedom. And some of them have like riches that, that, they've, that they've come out with that they are hoping and have intentions for for the first time, generational wealth. 
that they will hand down from generation to generation. And God is saying, I'd like you, as your heart moves you, I'd like you to be a part of what I'm doing. I'd like you to give a little of this back. Uh, some were probably like, yes, for sure. And you just, some, some were probably like, wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean you want some of this? We're not even talking about tithing, by the way. Tithing comes later. And there's like four kinds of tithing. Why were there four kinds of tithing? Why all this? I, 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 I want to suggest this. I believe what God was doing with his people was he wanted to instill in them, he wanted to remind them the truth of how he is the creator and sustainer of all things and he is the most generous of all that are generous and he wanted his people to have a culture of generosity unlike any other culture. I think it's there. He wanted his people to have a culture of generosity unlike any other people. So just take a... 30,000 foot flyover with generosity, a culture of generosity real quick. Everyone gets quiet in the room. Can I leave now? Will he see me? I don't know. There's a dilemma that we face with a culture of generosity. There is a truth to be grasped with a culture of generosity, and there's a lifestyle to attain with culture of generosity. What's the dilemma? The reality is that many of, many of us in this room Many, many of us in this room have witnessed either personally or through a loved one or just through a documentary that we have saw on YouTube or Netflix, just the great mismanagement of funds at different organizations. And whether it be embezzlement or whether it's just, just flat out mismanagement, like steal, whatever it may be, we, we, we've witnessed that. And so what we've done is something really good. By the way, what I'm talking about first is really good. I was running this by my wife, and she's like, make sure they know the first thing's really good. Okay, first thing's really good. What do we do? We create like a, a list. Because we want to be good stewards of what God's given us. So we create a list of moral and ethical and hopefully biblical things that especially like as we go into November and December, right, like really good organizations are going to ask us to be a part of what they're doing. And so we create a list, and we say, these are the things that, that I have devised, a checkbox, if you will, to make sure that I am, I am safe, and make sure that I am secure in, in giving my money away to this organization, and this is good. This is good stewardship. So what's the dilemma? The dilemma comes when we take this list and we put it over the generosity of God. When we take this list and we put it over the church. Why, why is that the dilemma? Because what we do when we place our list with good stewardship to everything outside the church, generosity toward God, and we put it over generosity toward God, giving to the church, what we do is we stop trusting God, and it's not truly how something has moved us, and it's, and it's based on our own insecurities and whether or not uh, we can feel safe. I believe that if we truly study the scripture. A culture of generosity that God wants in his people of Israel and what God wants in us is not one of insecurity but one of trust. This is the dilemma to the culture of generosity. It's our own insecurities and our own fears. So what is the truth to be grasped? The truth to be grasped is this. There is a great myth to financial freedom. The myth to financial freedom is that there is freedom in finances. 
The truth behind financial freedom is that finances will never bring you freedom. But there is something that will bring you freedom, and I think you can reduce it to this. You can reduce it to this. Be generous towards God, save and invest, live off the rest. Be generous towards God, save and invest, live off the rest. Why? What's so key about that? Because when you start with a mindset of being generous towards God, you're acknowledging that he is the holder of all things and that he just wants you to be a part of what he's doing by giving a little bit back. Being generous towards God teaches trust. And it requires you to give on faith, which is a whole different category and something that's really hard to do for some of us. Being generous towards God teaches trust. Saving and investing teaches wisdom. Some of you are like, man, I got a mountain of debt. Saving and investing, maybe the wisdom behind that is getting out of debt first and then transferring that wisdom into saving and investing. But I believe the Bible has a lot to say about this. And then lastly, living off the rest teaches contentment. Something that we're all really good at. Finances will never bring you freedom, but trust, wisdom, and contentment, you will find freedom in a way that you never knew you could. And I believe this is ingrained in what God wants for us, not just as people of Israel, but even now under, under Jesus, to have a culture of generosity. To, to, be, to ask the question, to turn the question on its head of just not what should I give, but what does it look like to be a generous person? If you're married, there's a question you should have with your spouse. And then be ready to, to call somebody you trust to be like, I just got in the biggest fight I've ever had. Because finances are like near and dear to our hearts, much more than we like to think. But what would it look like for us to be generous? It's a whole different question than what should we give. For those of you that don't have a spouse, whatever, like just find someone you trust and just engage in this conversation. Like what does it, what would, could it look like for me to be a generous person, to embody this culture of generosity? Why? Because here's the thing. Jesus completed the work of the tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, that we are God's temple. And so if we are God's temple, the sacrifices were always burning at the front, right? At the outer court. But Jesus completed the work of the tabernacle. So there's no need for sacrifices, right? Wrong. Here's where the shift happens. Jesus completed the work so that we could have favor with God. And so our sacrifices, and remember what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is giving up something that you love for the sake of somebody else. Our sacrifice towards God is not to gain his favor. Our sacrifice towards God is because we have his favor. And it's an empowered sacrifice. It's a freeing sacrifice. And it's understanding the invitation that Christ brings us into, not just for our salvation, but that God wants us through all that we have to be a part of what he's doing. It's one of the most beautiful answers to one of the most complex questions that many can have about faith. Well, like, why doesn't just God just snap his fingers and make it all okay? And part of the response to that, part of the answer to that is because he wants to do it with us. And how great is that? 
We have a God who cares so much for us that he has this divine blueprint throughout the entirety of humanity for us to have a restored relationship with him so that, we can't, so that we're not just gonna be sitting on our butts singing hallelujah for all eternity. We're gonna be working. We're gonna be working and, and here we can start now by doing what God wants us to do, by sacrificing in ways that God wants us to sacrifice so that we can be part of what he's doing in and through the lives of other people. Jesus is not just our salvation, but his salvation is an invitation to a whole different way of living. So this weekend, uh, Cassie and I, uh, and the kids, we went to a friend's house and, and kids were having fun. And so uh, our friend came out and she came out and she's like, I have a new game. And if you've ever had a friend that comes out and says, I have a new game, instantly you're like kind of a lot of anxiety and like, what's going to happen here? You know, like, is this going to, are we going to like this game? What is this going to be? But it actually turned out to be, actually turned out to be fun. And it's called uh, Get Crabby. Anyone hear this game, Get Crabby? Some people have. So, uh, <laughs> uh, side, side note, um, I was just, so whoever teaches, teaches at nine and then drives over to Sherman Park, preaches at Sherman Park and then comes back and, and teaches here at 11. So I was just at Sherman Park and I finished my message and I'm on my way out and a lady kind of gets up from the row and she says, that's not the real name of the game. And I was like, oh, she's like, it's called Kent or something. I don't know. Anyways, I think Target just took a real game and rebranded it to sell it. But regardless of that, here's the purpose of the game. Here's the purpose of the game. You're trying to collect four of a kind. There's, there's, the whole, there's a bunch of rules on how you do that, et cetera. But you're trying to click four of a kind. And you pair up. So we did what every good couple should do, boys versus girls, <laughs> right? So me and my buddy and, and the wives were on the same team. And so here's the unique thing of the game, is, is before the game begins, you have to like uh, choose a secret code that you're going to give when you collect four of a kind. And when that secret code happens, uh, your partner says, hey, Mark, it looks like you're getting crabby. Uh, you know, and you get a point. That's kind of how the game goes. But if the opposing team can guess that you're sending a code to each other, they can, they can steal your point. You guys with me on this? Okay. So, um, so we're playing the game and like I get four in a row. And I'm like, yes, I, do the, I do, the, do the thing. And he's like, hey, Mark, looks like you're getting crabby. You get a point, whatever. And all of a sudden the girls start catching up right? I'm a little bit competitive. And here's the gist. I lost. Okay. We lost. And it was my fault. And clearly I'm still working through this loss because it's a sermon illustration. Uh, but I think, I think there's a point to it. So here's the thing is like my partner had gotten for it and he had given the code, but I didn't see it. And so the wives kept intercepting and stealing our points. And that's how they kind of won the game. And like the first time it happened, I was like, dude, you didn't do the code. He's like, dude, I did it like five times. And I'm like, no way. He's like, yeah, five times. I'm like, oh my goodness. I came up with the code, by the way. I know it gets worse, right? And so like, and so we do it again. And he's like, dude, I gave it three times. And I'm like, how did I miss that? I was so focused on getting my four of a kind that I missed the whole thing that my buddy had the win already in his hand. Many of us live life this way. We are so focused with this, whatever our four of a kind is, our hopes, our dreams, our finances, our relationship, like we're so 
focused on this, that we completely lose sight that Jesus is standing in front of us going, I've already won the game. But in order for us to see that, it requires a little bit of sacrifice on our part, and that's just not as easy as we'd like. I think for some of us in the room, we we first need to just catch up with the fact that Jesus is our high priest and he he did all this for us. And so if you're in the room and and you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't have a saving faith in Jesus, do not leave today without praying with somebody or just praying in your heart, uh, believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that there was no sacrifice you could give, that, that Jesus paid the price that no one could pay and that Jesus stands before God on our behalf and that we have direct access to God and life eternal because of him. And if that's you today, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth and be saved. And please let us know so we can celebrate. That would be great. But for the rest of us, I would just like to offer this, that we ask the question, is it possible that Jesus is inviting us into something that we have yet to take part in because we're so concerned about our own four of a kind? We may have attained salvation with a saving faith in Jesus, but we have not truly, we have not truly given of ourselves to be a part of the work he is doing. And just ask that question. What does it look like to be a really generous person? What does it look like? What is God calling me to sacrifice in my life so that I can be a part of his? Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace. And God, help us Help us, give us wisdom and discernment, give us encouragement, Father, to to make the right choices. God, thank you so much for the tabernacle. Thank you so much for Jesus. How he fulfilled the work. And Father, in and through him, we can have life everlasting. Thank you for Jesus. But God, help us just to be a little bit more aware of the ways in which Jesus is inviting us into a different kind of life. The things that Jesus is asking us to sacrifice so that we can be a part of something even greater. Help us to put our four of a kind down so that we can see him standing in front of us saying, I've already won and I invite you into something new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.